0: you ever prayed and asked god to do whatever was necessary to draw someone to himself you know those kind of prayers lord work in this person's life parent spouse friend child cause them to to see you cause them to trust you do something grab their attention work in them in some way Seems to be some precedent for that, 1 Timothy 2, where it urges that there be supplications and prayers and thanksgivings and intercessions made for all people, and in that same context in 1 Timothy two four, it says God desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth, and so it does seem to speak there of part of our praying is praying that God would save people, that he would bring them to that knowledge of the truth. Now, we know that God does not save all by grace, he saves those who turn from their sin and who trust in Jesus Christ, and yet his desire is true and real. In fact, in Acts 17 30, God commands all people everywhere to repent and trust in Jesus Christ. And so we pray. We pray for God's will to be done. We pray for God to, to move hearts, to change them, to turn them toward himself. Like you turn to Isaiah 19 this morning, we're going to be uh, in the middle of a section, Isaiah 13 to 23, where God is confronting Gentile nations, where one after another, he is exposing their arrogance and their evil, and we see this cycle where he warns them of judgment, and then he gives hope to those who will turn and trust in Yahweh. We looked last week at chapters 13 to 18, this morning chapters 19 to 23, and throughout these passages... Um, Throughout these chapters, God is warning in particular groups of people in chapters 19 through 23, Egypt, Cush, also part of, of the African continent, Babylon, and Tyre. And you can see them, you have the map. Uh, in your sermon notes, and you can see it on the screen as well. I tried to highlight those in red, and then in, in chapter 22, there's sort of an insert in this section where he speaks particularly to Jerusalem in light of what he's been saying to the nations, where he chides Jerusalem for for trying to form alliances with the nations. Um, Tyre, you see, is added on the map now, and that's just that little coastal city there along the Mediterranean. And then there's a couple of smaller areas: the region of Arabia, a little town of Duma that we're, we're going to see mentioned later on in chapter 21. But as I, as I read and, and reread these chapters, th- there's a sense in which some of it, as I've said before, grammatically is somewhat repetitive in terms of being a cycle, sin, judgment, restoration, sin, judgment, restoration. But something that stood out to me throughout these chapters is how God works in the lives of unbelievers, to bring them to a place of conviction, to demonstrate their guilt, to show that they are relying on self when they need to trust in him for salvation. So far in Isaiah, what we've primarily seen is God using evil nations to punish other evil nations. He takes the sin of one nation and he uses the army from another and he uses that to to punish them, to carry out his judgment and to bring conviction by the fulfillment of prophecy. And so he removes his restraint on their wickedness. They act out according to their natural evil inclinations and by doing so they fulfill God's sovereign purposes in punishing another nation. And so Assyria was a tool to punish Israel and and numerous other countries that we've already seen, Damascus in in Syria itself. And then uh, Assyria was a tool to warn Judah. Babylon later will carry out God's punishment on Judah for their sin. And so we've seen nations used against nations. But in chapters 19 to 23, there are a lot of other ways that God works to expose man's sin and to bring him to a place of, of need or at minimum conviction that he sees his guilt. So I want to this morning, I want to show you eight ways that I, I, just in going through these chapters, that we see God exposing man's sinful pride, showing the the foolishness of his self-reliance, and giving him cause to trust in God alone. My my hope in doing this is first that we exalt God because of his wonderful work, his creativity, if you will, in, in in convicting the nations and convicting unbelievers, but also so that we would be encouraged because you have likely prayed for God to work in that person's life, for God to save that loved one that you know. And and these are just some of the many ways in which God carries out this work. We're gonna spend a lot of time at the beginning of chapter 19. Don't worry when it seems like we've only gone through four or five verses and you're thinking, and, and he's got eight ways and we're gonna be here all morning if we're gonna get through chapter 23. We're going to spend a lot of time in these first few verses and then skim the rest for for the most part. But let me just start in Isaiah 19, verse 1, says, an oracle concerning Egypt, behold, the Lord is riding on a swift cloud and comes to Egypt, and the idols of Egypt will tremble at his presence, and the heart of the Egyptians will melt within them. Israel's relationship to Egypt. Remember, Isaiah is primarily speaking to the Jewish people in the nation of Judah. And so even even though this is addressing Egypt, he is also trying to bring this to mind for the people of Judah. And we know that this relationship is long and it has been difficult, going all the way back to to God establishing Joseph in a high-governing position within Egypt so that he can be part of saving God's people, Jacob and his descendants, from a drought, from this severe drought. We know that after Joseph is off the scene, the Hebrew population grows, the Egyptians begin to fear them, and so they enslave them for 400 years. And yet by the time of the birth of Christ, Egypt is deemed safe enough that a young Jewish Father and mother can take their small baby boy, who also happens to be Israel's Messiah, and run to Egypt for a refuge. Isaiah gave this oracle somewhere after 715 BC. The last dating we have is back in chapter 14, where it tells us that King Ahaz has died. If you remember, the, the outline of the book is given to us in chapter 1, verse 1, That, in terms of dating, that Isaiah wrote this during the reigns of King Uzziah, King Jotham, King Ahaz, and King Hezekiah. So we've got the window in which Isaiah gives this, and so we're now transitioning from the next to last to the last king, at least chronologically, and the rest will take place under the reign of Hezekiah. That transition from Ahaz to Hezekiah somewhere around 716, 715 BC when Ahaz dies. Egypt, at this point in time, is a Strong nation, not a superpower. Assyria is the, the, the one mega power in the land. Egypt is a, is a significant nation. And in fact, when we get to chapter 30, when Assyria is again threatening Judah and that threat is growing, God says this to his people. This will be, we'll see it in Isaiah chapter 30. He says, ah, stubborn children who carry out a plan, but not mine and who make an alliance, but not of my spirit, that they may add sin to sin, who set out to go down to Egypt without asking for my direction, to take refuge in the protection of Pharaoh, and to seek shelter in the shadow of Egypt. Therefore shall the protection of Pharaoh turn to your shame, and the shelter in the shadow of Egypt to your humiliation. So we're going to see that very shortly after Isaiah gives this oracle, he's also recounting this this temptation by Hezekiah to consider aligning with with Egypt in some way and using Egypt as a a place where they could run to for refuge, which again is ironic when you consider Israel's history of protection in Egypt. God's message at that point is don't trust Egypt. Why are you making plans without consulting me? Why, Why are you setting courses and you're not asking me for direction? And so chapter 19, the last part of chapter 19, in fact, all of chapter 19, really gives the reasons why the Jews should not run to Egypt, because he's going to go into all the reasons why why Egypt would fail you, why Egypt should not be trusted. But ultimately, when he gets to the end of chapter 19, he goes on to say, there will be my work in Egypt and many will come to worship me in Egypt. The very last part of chapter 19 is this remarkable conclusion that many Egyptians ultimately would fear and worship the Lord, which is a remarkable thing, especially if you know anything about Egypt's history. They are considered one of the most polytheistic nations that ever existed. Uh, Throughout its ancient history, Egypt had at least 1,500 different named gods, and then multiple hundreds of others who were unnamed, who were just known for their functions as guardians of the afterlife, as those who judge the dead, as their gods for each hour of the night. The remarkable thing is that by AD so we're going a 1,000 years from the time that he writes this, Christianity has taken root in the city of Alexandria in northern Egypt. And it has become a focal point for the witness of the gospel and has a profound impact. And so in large part, what Isaiah is saying here is, why would you ever flee to a pagan polytheistic country for refuge when the people of that country ultimately will flee to Yahweh for refuge? Why would you run to them instead of running to Yahweh? Do this the right way and trust in me. And he was just pointing out the absurdity that they are considering an alliance with Egypt. But I really want to key in on this area of of how God is seeking to break the pride of the Egyptians, how he is working to to show them the foolishness of their self-reliance. And the first thing verse 1 indicates to us, the first thing that God does is he manifests supernatural power. Verse 1, again, says, shows this picture of the Lord coming in on a swift cloud using language that would have been familiar to their sort of idolatry and their thinking about God's, this, this dramatic appearance of God. And it says, the idols will tremble at his presence and the heart of the Egyptians will melt within them. He will cause the people to, to just be in shock at his power. They will be in awe. They will be taken back by his power. Now, the Egyptians have a little bit of history with this, don't they? If you go back to the encounters with Moses and Pharaoh and the, the sort of clash of power between God and the so-called gods of the Egyptians, when ultimately the magicians have to say to Pharaoh, we can't do what, what, what this guy's doing. We can't imitate. The, we can sort of do these, these semi-imitations of what he's doing, but, but we can't compete with him. This is a God who is over light and darkness, and life, and death to the point of taking the the firstborn at the Passover. And so Egypt has already had a profound experience of the power of God going back earlier in their history. And chapter 19 is saying it will happen again. God will come, and he will display his power, and it will be a humbling experience for the Egyptians. Let me just draw this to, to us by way of application. We don't always think in terms of these sorts of displays of God's supernatural power. There aren't many plagues that that we identify necessarily as saying, oh, that's clearly a a supernatural work of God or or the kinds of miracles that, that seem to be described here. And yet we know God still does miraculous, powerful things. Jeremiah was right when he said, nothing is too hard for you, O Lord. There are plenty of testimonies, We've heard them from the the doctors who who cannot explain the the healing of the person with the terminal diagnosis apart from something happening that they did not do. The the marriage that was completely on the rocks that, that somehow God has restored in a way that could only be miraculous. Or on a simpler level, we've all experienced at different points, God's gracious provision whether it be in some kind of resources or job or some answered prayer in a way that we can look at and go, there's really no other way to explain this. This is not some random coincidence. This is the power of God. And we've seen that. Our God is mighty. And when he chooses to act, he is entirely able to manifest his supernatural power to confront sinners and to draw them to himself as he's doing here in Egypt. Look at verse two. And I will stir up Egyptians against Egyptians, and they will fight each against another, each against his neighbor, city against city, kingdom against kingdom. Second thing, God disturbs things that people hold dear. God disturbs things that people hold dear, relationships and things that we cling to. God not only appears to the Egyptians, but he plunges them into this kind of internal chaos. As Isaiah writes this, the Assyrian attack on Egypt is still some 40 years away. So Egypt is still in a relatively safe place. And even after the Assyrians, they're able to rebuild. Assyria does not devastate the land so much that there's nothing left. And so Egypt still survives through it all. But historians tell us that that is followed by roughly 200 years of incessant infighting within Egypt amongst those who claimed various relations to royalty. There was just constant battling as factions battled for supremacy. The nation was divided against itself, just as God had said would be the case. For this once great nation known for a, a sovereign ruler, the Pharaoh, spent 200 years in turmoil battling within itself. God still does that today. God still uses family conflicts and betrayals from friends to shake the lives of people, to to grab hold of unbelievers. Some of you can tell stories of of, of how God drew you to Himself, even as you were sunk in the midst of some kind of of turmoil. Some kind of relationship that had mattered to you had fallen apart and there was hostility. You were in loneliness from some broken family relationship and it's out of that that the gospel suddenly took hold of your heart and you realize the beauty of of one who never leaves you and never forsakes you and, and who always is there. In his kindness, God repeatedly teaches us that human bonds are imperfect, even the intimacy of the closest friendships or blood relatives, we still let each other down. We still hurt people who are closest to us. And some of our hardest days happened because a relationship that we treasured suddenly blew up. Somebody said something or did something or we said something and did something and it just shattered that relationship. And we are reminded again that there is only one who says, I will never leave you or forsake you. You think of the Samaritan woman that Jesus meets at the well and for the series of broken relationships in her life, for the fact that she was ostracized by those in the community because of her immoral lifestyle and is living this relatively lonely life, it is Jesus who comes to her and offers her the eternal refreshment of living water. Come to me and you will find satisfaction for your soul, something you've been seeking in all of these relationships. God has has sovereignly disturbed all of them in such a way that she is now left finding that only in Christ is there that hope. Verse 3, and the spirit of the Egyptians within them will be emptied out, and I will confound their counsel. They will inquire of idols and sorcerers and mediums and necromancers. If you drop down in chapter 19, down to verse 11, he builds on this theme of confounding the counsel of the people who were trusted. Isaiah 19, verse 11, the princes of Zion are utterly foolish. The wisest counselors of Pharaoh give stupid counsel. How can you say to Pharaoh, I'm a son of the wise, a son of ancient kings. Well, where then are your wise men? Let them tell you that they might know what the Lord of hosts has purposed against Egypt. The princes of Zoan have become fools and the princes of Memphis are deluded. Those who are the cornerstones of their tribes have made Egypt stagger. The Lord has mingled within her a spirit of confusion, and they will make Egypt stagger in all its deeds as a drunken man staggers in his vomit, and there will be nothing for Egypt that head or tail, palm branch or reed may do. Third thing God does, another way, just another one of the many ways that God works in the lives of unbelievers to show them the foolishness of their self reliances by confounding the wise and causing them to become fools. Egypt had a great reputation for wisdom. Back in 1 Kings 4, verse 30, when it's talking about the wisdom that Solomon was gifted by God, it says, Solomon's wisdom surpassed the wisdom of all the people of the East and all the wisdom of Egypt. God... There was a reputation that was known that Egypt had for its wisdom. And here's God now exposing their wisest counselors, their leaders, the ones who say, I am a son of the wise, a son of ancient kings. I I can give you great counsel. And God is now exposing them as useless. In fact, the proof, he says in verse 12, is go to them and ask if they can identify Israel's God as the Lord of history and tell you what he's going to do. Because if they can't do that, they have no idea what they're talking about. If they can't identify the God of Israel as the Lord of all of history and the one who is sovereignly arranging it, then they are fools. They are blinded. They are not discerning, not just because they've suddenly forgotten or stumbled. It is because, God says, because I will delude them. I will bring this confusion on them. God caused them to drink of confusion so that it describes them as staggering in this this drunken state, the least to the greatest. That's what it means there at the end of verse 15. Head, tail, palm branch, read. Leaders from the highest to the lowest, the, the ones you would look to for counsel, have nothing. In fact, what they say is just foolishness. They have no idea which way to turn. One of the ways that that we've seen God work, and maybe you've experienced this personally in working in the life of an unbeliever, to bring that person to the end of self is to take all of that person's carefully laid out life goals and all of the, the right strategies and timelines for achieving those goals and just completely destroy them. Everything that that you plan for and think, this is is what I'm going to do, and this is what I'm going to accomplish it, and God throws a wrench in it, and suddenly all of that planning and all of that wisdom just looks like absolute chaos. The company downsizes, or the engagement is called off, or a pandemic hits and changes everything, and the wise are staggering with confusion. Now what? This same lesson, and we we won't take all of the time in chapter 22, but but chapter 22 is the oracle concerning the Valley of Vision, and it is in particular speaking to the people of Jerusalem. It's the one interjection in all of this series to, to Gentile nations. But amid these oracles, it gives us a glimpse into the mindset of the people in Jerusalem that's driving them to run to other nations. Chapter 22 talks about some of the steps that the people of Jerusalem took to try to protect their city from from tearing down houses to to get the wood to help fortify the walls to to building a better reservoir within the city walls to protect their water supply. Isaiah 22.11 says at a time when when the people should have been mourning, weeping, grieving over their own sin, instead Isaiah 22.12 says they are are partying with joy and gladness. They've got the idea that we got this figured out. We've, we've fortified our city, we're ready to go, we can, we can do battle here. And listen, even if it doesn't work, even if it all fails, then we're gonna party and we're gonna enjoy life and, and, until that happens. All of this, instead of mourning over sin and turning to Yahweh and trusting in Yahweh, they had their plans for facing the enemy and yet chapter 22 saying to the Jewish people, even some of your own leaders have already fled They've already abandoned Jerusalem. They 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 have no answers for you so much so that they've they've fled. And and it goes on in chapter 22, and it talks about some of the counselors to the king who did remain, some of those who were respected and and who were looked at as strong and dependable. It describes them in chapter 22 as a a peg in the wall, a strong peg that you you put in the wall so that you can hang something on it. Anything can, can rest on that peg. And it describes some of these counselors with that sort of language, and it says in the end, that peg will be cut down. And everything that is hanging on that peg will crash to the ground with it. That's how God confounds the wise and makes them look like fools lying on the ground. These ones who who are being depended on for their counsel. And God says, if you will not depend on me, I will confound the wise and I will make them to be fools. I would just say as an aside in chapter 19, back in verse 3, where he says they will inquire of idols, sorcerers, mediums, and necromancers. That practice is still alive and well today. Spiritism is packaged as psychics and spiritual guides who have their shops all around. Uh, I just was looking to just see what was nearby and reading the reviews. And and you go in and and you draw on the aura of their energy. And they give you all these keen insights about yourself. And they tell you things about the future. In Deuteronomy 18, God said, fortune-telling divination, communication with the dead, those who inquire of the dead, mediums. He called them detestable, abominable. It is the realm of evil spirits, and it is the work of evil spirits to sow deceit and confusion. They are actively working to give false peace to people who are lost Acts 16 gives us the illustration of this, the, the slave girl who is, who is used by her owners to tell people about what is in the future, and she's bringing them great profit from her divination until what? Paul commands that the evil spirit within her come out of her in the name of Jesus Christ, and she now becomes worthless to those owners because she is no longer led by that evil spirit. Such practices are dangerous. This is not just an ancient thing. We need to be aware of this as well, that these practices are dangerous. The Spirit of God is also greater than any evil spirit, and the Spirit of God is powerful to confound all of the counsel of evil spirits as well. And that's what he's doing here in Egypt as they're, they're consulting these ones that they've relied on before. God says, I will cloud it in such a way that they will look like fools. Verse 4, Isaiah 19 verse 4, and I will give over the Egyptians into the hand of a hard master, and a fierce king will rule over them, declares the Lord God of hosts. Fourth thing God may do is give an unbeliever into godless hands. This one's a lot like what we've seen already throughout Isaiah, and that is God taking arrogant, sinful people and now putting them in the hands of other evil people and removing the restraints and and experiencing then the, the wrath of God through this Judgment of others, acts of others. And as Isaiah 20 confirms, despite some, some strong attempts to defend itself, Egypt was taken into captivity by the Assyrians. They later came back and they rebuilt, but there was a defeat at the hand of the Assyrians. And so that's what he's describing here when he says a fierce king will rule over them. They, they will lose. God still uses, even today, the actions of godless people to draw other unbelievers to himself. Some who have suffered sin, evil at the hands of others, may see their own sin and put their hope in Christ. Some who have been abused and victimized by the evil of others, they come to a place of calling on on the one who is good and kind and just. It's an interesting, I I think, sort of analogy to this that I'll draw on. In, in, In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, it's a passage where um, Paul is, is speaking to the church in Corinth about their, their being tolerant about a man who is carrying on in immoral sin. He is involved in a, a sexual relationship that is bordering on incest, that is clearly involving adultery, and, and there is no sign of repentance. And Paul gives this specific instructions to the church in 1 Corinthians 5, 4 and 5. He says, when you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. There's several different challenging issues in this passage and I'm not gonna try to take them apart this morning, but ultimately the goal at the end of verse five is that man's salvation, his persistent immorality has demonstrated that even though he was at least connected physically to the life of the local church, he was clearly an unbeliever. He was acting like an unbeliever. And so the aim here is to take this one who has succumbed to fleshly desires to put him in a place where he will feel the full weight of where his desires are leading. He will find the pain of being in Satan's domain is not worth the fleeting pleasures of the sin that he is experiencing. And the prayer is that he would turn to Christ and be saved so that his spirit would be delivered. Isaiah 19.4 is an act of God's judgment. I will turn you over. I will give you into the hand of a hard master, but it is also mercy. By plunging unbelievers deeper into the realm of sin's destructive power, the further experience of pain and consequences and cost of sin is also used by God to draw people to the place of finally reaching bottom and crying out for deliverance from that, of finally looking to the only one who can forgive sin and bring salvation. Next six verses in Isaiah 19, last ones that we'll look at in this chapter, could be summed up in verse 5. It says, and the waters of the sea will be dried up, and the river will be dry and parched. Nearly all of Egypt's population at this point in time, and even still largely today, lives either on the banks of the Nile or in the Nile Delta. If you look at any sort of sort of Google uh, satellite sort of picture, it's desert with sort of a green ribbon that runs down through it. There's sort of this oasis in the middle of the Sahara Desert. And so everybody lives there. That's where the water supply is. That's where life is. So what these verses are describing here is not only unprecedented, but utterly devastating. It's describing God doing a work in nature that would dry up the Nile. Now, there's no record of this prophecy yet being completely fulfilled. I'll tell you that all of the, the scientists, and I'm not going to engage in the debate on this, but all the scientists will say, if you look at what's happening in the climate, that the Nile and the Nile Delta are, are shrinking, which for all we know is the sovereign work of God as well in terms of God using man in a way to bring about exactly what he said here. But here's the, the point that I really want you to get. The Lord of creation can disturb the created order in such a way as to cause unbelievers to see him and to worship him. This is the Lord of creation in verses five through 10, describing how he will disturb if need be the very created order in order to work in the lives of the Egyptians and cause them to see their need. Hardly unprecedented for God to use weather and natural disasters to cause people to acknowledge his greatness or to cry out for his help, or to have a firsthand experience of God using his people, of sending his people into those areas where where they are serving areas ravaged by disease and by disasters of this kind. It is hardly unprecedented that the Church of Jesus Christ, over the centuries, its medical teams and aid teams have often taken the most sacrificial lead in entering areas ravaged by disease, and disaster in order to serve and to build shelters and to provide food and medicine and to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. All as a result of God working in the the created order to bring about circumstances that require that kind of care. The one who laid the foundation of the earth is more than able to shake that foundation in order to drive people to bow before him. All right, that's five ways that God crushes man's sinful pride, exposes his self-reliance, and teaches unbelievers to trust in him. Last half of 19, I've already mentioned to you, celebrates Egypt coming to fear the Lord and worship him only. as, as just further evidence that all that God is doing ultimately has the purpose of his worship and his glory. He comes to the end of chapter 19 and celebrates the fact that not only have Egyptians come and bowed the knee before him, but so have Assyrians. And so chapter 19 ends with blessed by Egypt uh, that says the Lord is, is blessed by Egypt, my people in Assyria, the work of my hands and Israel, my inheritance. This glorious picture of God taking people who have been dead set against him and through all various means, God is working in their culture, in their history, throughout these prophetic words, in in disturbing nature and relationships and turning them against each other. And ultimately, in the end, there is a remnant that is crying out in worship. Chapter 20. It's one of the most interesting chapters in the book of Isaiah. If you read it this week, it might have raised some, some questions here. This is somewhere around 711 BC. Egypt and its southern neighbor Cush They're in the African continent, and they are trying to provide, if you will, a a kind of backstop for those who are north of them to say, okay, the Assyrians are coming. We'll sort of be your your backup. We'll be there for you. We'll we'll come up, and we'll provide strength from the the rear guard so that we can support you, and so as the Assyrian army threatens, Egypt and Cush are sending sort of a trust me message. We'll be there for you. Well, chapter 20 mentions the city of Ashdod. If you look back at the the map, at the drawing in your notes, you'll see that that's part of the area of Philistia. It's right along the the Mediterranean, um, just straight west of Jerusalem. And so it talks about Ashdod. And Egypt and Cush essentially say to Ashdod, you trust us. We'll be there for you. And the reality is history tells us and Isaiah tells us that it didn't work. Ashdod completely fell and was captured by the Assyrians. And so when that happened, God commissions Isaiah to do something very unusual. And again, Isaiah is ministering in Judah, in Jerusalem at this time. And here's what God says to Isaiah, chapter 20, verse 2. At that time, the Lord spoke by Isaiah, the son of Amoz, saying, "'Go and loose the sackcloth from your waist and take off your sandals from your feet.' And he did so, walking naked and barefoot." Then the Lord said, as my servant Isaiah has walked naked and barefoot for three years, as a sign and a portent against Egypt and Cush, so shall the king of Assyria lead away the Egyptian captives and the Cushite exiles, both the young and the old, naked and barefoot with buttocks uncovered the nakedness of Egypt. First thing we know is Isaiah has already been embodying, the message of Yahweh, by virtue of wearing sackcloth. Sackcloth is uncomfortable. It is worn both as either a sign of poverty or grieving. Those who weren't in poverty would wear sackcloth at a time of a family death to, to emphasize grieving. His message often was grieving about man's sin. So he's already wearing sackcloth to embody that message. And now God commands Isaiah to remove the sackcloth. Underneath that was probably a a loincloth, which would have left his buttocks exposed, which seems to be the intent, at least as described here um, in in verse 4. There's commentators will say it it could be nakedness. It wouldn't seem necessarily appropriate in the streets of Jerusalem for three years. It certainly could be a loincloth, and that would meet the purpose of demonstrating to them the foolishness of trusting in other nations. Because Isaiah is doing this under the command of God, to say, see what happened in Ashdod? See how the Egyptians helped them? How the Cushites came and helped them? Did nothing. And in fact, there's coming a day when the Assyrians will take the Egyptians and the Cushites and they will be shamed and they will be dragged out of their nation. We best not try to explain away Isaiah's appearance. There's no reason to not take this literally to try to say, oh, well, maybe there's some kind of figure of speech here. There doesn't seem to be. This was a visual sign of the impending attack of the Assyrians. And yes, Egypt, we know, will repent and turn one day. But what he's saying to the Jews is, why would you put your hope in them? They are going to be dragged away in utter shame. Just as Isaiah looks right now and you think his appearance looks shameful, this is what will happen to the Egyptians and the Cushites when they are defeated. All right, here's here's the application I want to give you from, from chapter 20. Sixth means that God uses to bring unbelievers to repentance. He uses servants who are even willing to bear shame and embarrassment for the cause of Yahweh. This is the one that gets maybe a little more convicting and a little more personal for you and I, God using servants who are willing to bear even shame and embarrassment for the cause of Yahweh. I want to read to you from commentator John Oswald. He wrote on this a lot better than I can explain it. And so he writes this, we are offended at a God who would demand such a thing of his faithful servant. Why would God call for this? Surely it wasn't necessary to go to such extremes. It all depends on how seriously you take God and his word. How important was it that the Judeans, particularly Hezekiah, learn not to trust Egypt and instead trust God? Was it more important than Isaiah's dignity? Or was it just a matter of personal preference whether to obey God? Was it a matter of life and death for Judah? It certainly was, and it may be argued that because of Isaiah's willingness to be faithful to God, Hezekiah did trust God. We live at a time that demands tolerance. Christians are called to embrace pluralism, to stop speaking out on matters of holiness and morality. If, if, you, if you don't stop, you may be mocked, you may be canceled, you may be dragged over the the coals of social media? Is it worth possible embarrassment to stand against that tide? Is it worth the shame of, of looking different, of being degraded even by the culture, for standing for the gospel of Jesus Christ? The temptation, if I'm Isaiah, might have been, it's, it's gotta, I, I, can, I can yell louder. I, I know I can say this in more convicting ways, not, not this. And listen, it's tempting for us. Put your head down, hold on to the gospel, lay low. I don't want to be canceled. I think what troubles us more, at least what troubles me more about Isaiah is not the degrading nature of what he was called to do, but it's the idea that I might face this kind of humiliation for the cause of Christ, that God might call you and I to in some way be embarrassed, in front of our culture because of the gospel. We we rightly criticize prosperity preaching, but I dare say that I would prefer to have a life of blessing that I can say to people, see here, look at this, this is what my God does. See how how wonderful this is, follow him and, and, and you too will be blessed. That's a whole lot easier than being called to a humble state that might even embarrass me and saying, I am resting in the King. and and I am right where God wants me to be in this place, and I will speak his message. This is about the worship of the one true God and the salvation of souls for eternity. Are we willing to bear even shame and contempt for the name of God? All right, chapter 21. Another oracle against another city takes you all the way down to verse 9 before you finally recognize that it's Babylon that he has in mind here. He speaks about a whirlwind coming across the desert, a wilderness by the sea, and he names some places, but it isn't until verse 9 of chapter 21 that he says, Fallen, fallen is Babylon, and all the carved images of her gods he has shattered to the ground. Talked about this last week. Two senses in which the Bible and and Isaiah particularly use Babylon, sort of the broad Um, spirit of the age kind of sense where he uses Babylon as sort of a code word to say this is is man's humanistic, self-reliant sin. Babylon stands for man believing that he is God and doesn't need God. And then there's, of course, the the city slash empire of Babylon, the actual geographic location. It's probably the latter that he has in mind here. This is God's judgment on the empire of Babylon. About the time Isaiah writes this, there's a Babylonian leader who's working really hard to try to equip to, to Babylon to get out from underneath Assyria at that point. Around 705 BC, Babylon was starting to become something of a threat to Assyrian dominance, so much so that Isaiah 39 says the son of Babylon's king took a gift and sent messengers to King Hezekiah in Judah and said, trust us. Trust Babylon, will work with you in protecting you against the Assyrians. The point here then of, of this chapter, chapter 21, is Isaiah saying the same thing he's been saying all along, why, why would you look to this nation? Why would you look to Babylon for help when Babylon is doomed? Let me show you how Babylon is doomed. And that's what chapter 21 goes on to describe how the Persians and the Medes will ultimately overthrow Babylon. So he's saying, you're going you're to put your hope in them and they won't be there. Don't trust them. In verse 2, Isaiah said God showed him a stern vision about Babylon. And even though Babylon would eventually attack Jerusalem, that stern vision was enough to cause Isaiah to be anguished by what he saw in God's judgment of Babylon. Watching the the day of the Lord, God's wrath poured out on Babylon caused anguish even for Isaiah, who rightly would have despised Babylon for what he knew that they would do. Yet Isaiah in verse 4 of 21 says, "'My heart staggers, horror has appalled me. The twilight I longed for has been turned for me into trembling.'" Isaiah saying, I, I did, I, I longed for darkness to fall on Babylon. I understand how evil they are, and then I saw what God was going to do in the day of his wrath, and it caused even my knees to become weak. But look at verse 6. Isaiah 21, verse 6. For thus the Lord said to me, Go, set a watchman, let him announce what he sees. When he sees riders, horsemen in pairs, riders on donkeys, riders on camels, let him listen diligently, very diligently. Then he who saw cried out, Upon a watchtower I stand, O Lord, continually by day, and at my post I am stationed whole nights. And behold, here come riders, horsemen, and pairs, and he answered, Fallen, fallen is Babylon, and all the carved images of her gods. He is shattered to the ground. O my threshold and winnowed one, what I have heard from the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, I announce to you. Seventh thing, God uses servants, not only who will bear shame and embarrassment, but he uses bold watchmen who are not afraid to speak his truth. Even when no one wants to hear that truth, even when that truth is despised, he still uses bold watchmen. Isaiah is commanded by God to be a lookout, to stand watch and to declare, here comes the enemy, we need to prepare for this. He is, he is announcing Babylon will fall. That is as nonsensical a thing to say at this point, 8th century BC, as you could possibly think of. Babylon's a strong city. How dare you say Babylon is falling or has fallen? Can't possibly be. Doesn't make any sense. It's not true. In fact, there, there are trading partners to Babylon who rely on their commerce, who, who despise this message. How dare you say this about Babylon. Arabia, the, the region of Arabia was going to see refugees fleeing Babylon's destruction. Talks about the town of Duma and one of these, the oracle concerning Duma verses 11 and 12. It's this little city that, that's between Babylon and the West that, that's part of the trade route. And, and, and Duma is now weeping because if Babylon is falling, then Duma has lost its economy as well. Isaiah is that watchman who proclaims, this is what the Lord says. This is what God warns. As servants of Christ, we are called to speak his truth, even when the message is despised or seems to be foolish. We are to warn people. We are to talk about sin. We are to talk about holiness. We are to talk about man's need of a savior. We are to be that watchman who speaks what is true. We've already touched on chapter 22. It's the section on, on Jerusalem. And so we made it chapter 23. God's oracle against Tyre and Sidon. Tyre is a a rich seaport on the coast of the Mediterranean, about 100 miles northwest of Jerusalem. It's got a mountainous coastline. God's design of Tyre is is what would seem to be, for coastal cities, perfect. It's got these mountains behind it that shield it from behind. The mountains form all of these different coves and harbors so you can tie up your ship and it's guarded from, from the wind and all of the impact of that. And so it is a major trade city. Cities from the other side of the Mediterranean, from the European continent, would come and bring their goods to Tyre and would sell them there. And so chapter 23 speaks of revenue flowing into Tyre. Verse 8 describes the merchants of Tyre as being like royalty. It's traders as being among the most honored on earth. Verse 7 describes Tyre as a triumphant city. If the economy is what people care about the most, Tyre was just one of those places that the ancient Near East loved and envied. If Babylon was the the capital of commerce in the east, Tyre was the city in the west. And not only did it have the commerce, but between the mountains and the sea, it was considered impenetrable. It had this great natural sort of barrier that defended it. And then verse 1 of Isaiah 23 God says, wail, O ships of Tarshish, those coming from the west, for Tyre is laid waste, without house or harbor. God says, it's not gonna last. The Babylonians are the first ones to come and and laid siege to Tyre and spent thirteen years laying siege to that city to try to destroy it ultimately did enough damage to the city that what the people did largely at the end of the Babylonian siege is they had an island that was a half mile out from the shore, went out there, rebuilt the city with walls that historians tell us were about 150 foot high in spots and basically built this island fortress, which again could serve for trade purposes and which again, they were sure no one could ever penetrate. And then just about 200, 250 years later, Alexander the Great came. And Alexander the Great wanted to worship a god in Tyre, and they didn't want him to worship there because he wasn't worshiping rightly the way they wanted. So they turned him down, and so he said, I'm going to attack you, but I'll offer you peace. And he sent his messengers to Tyre with a message of peace, and they killed Alexander the Great's messengers. Not a smart move militarily. And so Alexander the Great took his massive army and began to build out of stone a causeway from the land to the island. And it took a great deal of time, and, and, and we're told that the people of Tyre, for the most part, mocked what he was doing. The water was 20 feet deep in spots, so this was a massive effort. But by the time it was finished, Alexander was able to take ships and use that causeway and put battering rams on both and start to pummel that city of Tyre until the point that it finally fell. And the walls broke through, and it says that 6,000 people were killed and another 30,000 people were enslaved. Tyre is laid waste without house or harbor. Final lesson from Isaiah 19 through 23 that I want to give you this morning is God in his mercy will even decimate man's prosperity to make him stop trusting in himself. There's nothing like financial ruin to bring us to a place of humility, to cause an unbeliever to stop and reevaluate life and to teach people to perhaps turn to the living God. When everything is lost and the successful woman or the prosperous man is suddenly now in debt and their accounts are drained, it is a humbling experience. And what God did to Tyre, he still does. And that is mercifully strip away all the props and all the possessions to bring someone to finally realize there is only one eternal, lasting treasure, and that is Jesus Christ. I'll finish with this. Uh, Back in 1890, a British man whose own life had been decimated by illness found himself living amongst the homeless in London. Name was Francis Thompson, where he learned about a savior and he began to comprehend the truth that behind all of the circumstances that landed him where he was, was a loving pursuer who was patiently, persistently drawing him to himself. Thompson wrote a poem about a phrase that others he had heard before, it had been used before by the Puritans. Some even say it goes back um, as far as Martin Luther. This poem was called The Hound of Heaven. And it describes a man in his foolish depravity, running, fleeing, determined to follow his own efforts and live his own life when all the while there is a loving, relentless, merciful God who is pursuing him with eternal hope. I'll just read you the beginning of it. It's not in modern English, so we'll work through it just real quickly. I fled him down the nights and down the days. I fled him down the arches of the years. I fled him down the labyrinthine ways of my own mind. And in the midst of tears, I hid from him. And under running laughter, upvisted hopes, I sped from those strong feet that followed, followed after. But with unhurrying chase... And with unperturbed pace, deliberate speed, majestic instancy, they beat, and a voice beat more instant than the feet. All things betray thee who betrayest me. Francis Thompson was able to come to a place by God's grace of seeing that all of these circumstances in his life had not happened randomly. They were the work of a sovereign God who was graciously pursuing him working after him. And with no sense of panic, the Lord followed, sense rather of determination like the hound that's chasing the fox. He will get it, patiently, mercifully, arranging state, uh, circumstances, inserting servants to speak truth. And all of that by grace compelled Thompson toward Jesus and his gospel. Maybe this is you this morning. Maybe this is someone you know, someone who is just running They're they're trying to rest in stuff and relationships or things or whatever. And Isaiah is reminding us again, God works through ways we could never imagine. God in his mercy will use judgment, disturbances, hardships, trials, suffering to bring us to a place of bowing before him and worshiping him as the one true God and saving us from our sin. Let's pray. We worship you, O God. Each person here who is trusting in Jesus Christ as Savior can recount a testimony of your marvelous grace, of our depravity leading us to sin and rebellion and turning from you and ignoring you and wanting to live on our own and you graciously the one who desires that all would turn to him in your mercy working in us and perhaps using a servant who was bold to speak or not afraid to be ashamed or perhaps changing our circumstances in such a way that we would finally pause to look at our own hearts and our own need. Lord, those who join with me here this morning as brothers and sisters in Christ, we just want to worship you and thank you. Thank you for rescuing us from the the pit of our own sin and the judgment of death that we deserve. Thank you for the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. Father, I pray that someone listening this morning is is on that that road of of self-reliance, of stubbornly moving forward in their own rebellion against you. Thank you, Lord, that that you are a a good and gracious God and pray that you would penetrate what they think is an impenetrable wall and bring them to see that the Savior Jesus Christ is their only hope and their one true, lasting treasure, the one who is faithful. Lord, in Christ alone, in his name, there is hope Mm -hmm. and peace and life and salvation. Help us, I pray, as Grace Bible Church, help us to be those kind of faithful servants who would not be ashamed to speak truth, who would not be afraid to speak truth, but who would trust that if if this is what your word says, we will speak it, that we would do it compassionately, that we would, like Isaiah, have anguish in our hearts toward those who are lost and not, not a cruel hatred on our part, but that we would have a loving compassion that would cause us to even ourselves be humiliated so that we might proclaim Christ. Thank you for all that you've done in our lives to point us to the great treasure that is the gospel. Thank you for the saving power of that message. Thank you for your glorious work in our lives. We pray it in Jesus' name, amen.